To be or not to be, the question is older than Shakespeare might like us to admit. For millennia, human beings have contemplated their relationship to the cosmos. Often varied and strange tracks of thought have led to remarkably similar conclusions, that all life is related, interwoven and interdependent, that humans are not in fact the center of the universe, nor is their earth. Yet Christians have claimed since the beginning that one particular person, at a particular place, in a particular time, has immense cosmic significance to all of humanity and even reality. This is Logosish. Today we explore Christianity's ideas about just what it means for God to become human and how one contemporary theologian is grappling with what those ideas might mean about humanity's relationship with the rest of reality. Hey guys, welcome back to Logosish. It is a bright and beautiful day in St. Matthew, South Carolina. I am just kidding. It's been raining all day long, every single day for the past like two or three days. But uh, we are just so excited to be back. How's everybody doing today? Doing great, John. I actually have a correction from a previous episode. Uh, we are getting listeners, which is wonderful. But my sister, who is in advertising, uh, wanted to correct us from our Good Place episode that it's actually Lay's potato chips that you can't have just one, whereas Pringles are once you pop, you can't stop. This has been an advertising correction. I guess we do need fact checkers at some point. Who wants to volunteer to be the fact checker for the podcast? Not it. Yeah, I just kind of uh, make things narratively interesting, so uh, I, I don't think I'll be able to do that. That just mean by default I became the fact checker? <laughs> That's the magic of Methodism right there. When Garrett says the words narratively interesting, I can't help but think, oh, this is why we need a fact checker. Yeah, Brian, I think you may have just been nominated. Congratulations. Google is your friend. Well, but overall, I'm doing great as our new fact checker. So far, I think we're doing fine. <laughs> and that's a fact. Yeah. And uh, I'm doing well uh, down here in Florida. We have been experiencing rain every day for the last couple months, but ministry has been doing re really well. We're just navigating COVID like everyone else. And people are starting to craft ideas on how to overcome those challenges. So it's, it's been really nice to see uh, my folks uh, think a little outside the box rather than just waiting for the pastors or the appointed leaders just to come up with something. Awesome. That's really cool. Well, we are really, really fortunate to be joined today by um, an assistant professor of theology from Boston University, and she is also the director of the Faith and Ecological Justice Program there, Dr. Becky Copeland. Uh, welcome to the podcast today. You have a new book out, right? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. Um, my first book, Created Being, Expanding Creedal Christology, came out a couple months ago now. So I'm very excited to be here and talk about it with you all today. 
We are so excited to have you. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that the the book, Created Being, Expanding Creedal Christianity or Christology. Am I messing it up already? I am messing it up already. I wrote it down. Back check, back check. (laughs) Uh, But it's available uh, thanks to Baylor Press uh, for 20% off. The coupon code is 17FALL20, 17FALL20. 17FALL20. All right. Now that we got that straight, (laughs) Becky, how are you doing today? Tell us a little bit about yourself. I am doing well. Um, I'm in Worcester, Massachusetts, where the weather is a perfect 83 degrees with 45% humidity. Yes, I moved here from Georgia, so I pay attention to these things. It's kind of the perfect weather. And it's a little hectic up here. The school year started last week, and we are embarking on one of those, uh, the learn from anywhere format. So we have students who are on campus, we have students who are not on campus, who are participating online, all in the same classes. And so it has been quite the adventure trying to juggle all of that as we get started. So Becky, the last time I talked to you, you had only seen like three people in person. So you're, you're back in the classroom? Yes, we are back in the classroom now, although I've still only seen, I think, four people in person because the majority of my students are attending online. But we do have students coming into class, and so there are people on the campus now, which is somewhat lovely and somewhat you know, nerve-wracking after you've been in isolation for six months. I'm sure. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty stressful situation. We've talked to several people who have kids doing different kinds of programs, especially even in the same household, doing different kinds of programs at the K through 12 level. And, you know, they're certainly having some, some serious adventures along the way. So, so kudos to you for juggling, you know, a whole classroom full of students (laughs) who have those different formats going on. So how does one become an assistant professor of theology and director of the Faith and Ecological Justice Program at Boston University? A whole bunch of good fortune. So um, before I went to seminary, I was actually an attorney. I uh, practiced law in the Commonwealth of Virginia, where Brian is now. And um, I was an assistant prosecutor, and then I was an assistant Commonwealth, no, sorry, assistant attorney general uh, for eight years. And somewhere in 2008, I had an overwhelming call on my life to go into some form of ministry. It was not specifically to pastor a church, but some form of ministry. And I ended up in the middle of a recession, not being able to sell my house, but renting it out and moving to Atlanta to start uh, the MDiv program at Candler School of Theology. And I thought I was going to become better equipped for some kind of urban ministry with a church very similar to the one I had come from, from Virginia Beach. But it was in my third year in seminary that I was really called to teach. And so I ended up staying and getting another degree and then a PhD from Emory University. And along that path, I cared about the environment, but I came, became much more invested in ecological issues throughout the whole PhD program. Um, thankful to a great extent for a couple of colleagues that I met my first year in the program who the, this was one of their passions. And so we started a religion and ecology collaborative while we were there, working with faculty from the Department of Religion and Department of Environmental Science 
um, and gathering to, to carry on conversations at the intersection of religion and environmental studies, environmental justice, environmental activism. And then I just had the immense good fortune to actually get a job as an assistant professor at Boston University, which is the first Methodist theological school in the United States. And so it was really just a blessing. When I started the program, I told people, you know, I'm doing the PhD work because I would like to one day teach at a progressive Methodist theological school. And the realists among us said, you're going to need to temper those expectations, but here I am. So it's been really wonderful. And then uh, once I got here, I started working towards uh, this program and certificate. Dean Mary Elizabeth Moore had already been laying the groundwork to make these moves into ecological justice in our program. Um, and once I got there, I was able to start a program with the support of the faculty, and we now have a certificate that students can earn. We've graduated two students, and we have a cohort of, I think, 13 this year. It's always really fun to build something new like that. And it's really cool that you've been able to kind of come in on the ground floor and just kind of hit the, hit, you know, just hit the ground running. I'm using the word ground a lot. But, um, you know, seems legitimate in ecological conversations. Yes. Yeah. Especially, you know, thinking about ground and soil and all of those wonderful things. Uh, but you're here today to talk about partly your book uh, and, but also just the, the theme of incarnation in Christianity. And that is a big word. Can you kind of break it down for us? What is the, the history surrounding the idea of incarnation and how, you know, people of faith have thought about that for a long, long time. Sure. And there's actually two ways to get at this. I guess I'll start with the, the general. And then also there's how did I get into this topic um, through theological school? But incarnation is the term to describe what Christians profess when they say that the word became flesh, that the divine became a human being. And so this is different from other religions, um, where the founder of a religion may be considered a prophet or a teacher, but not actually the personification of the divine, or other religions in which the divine might take on different appearances and um, interact with the material world, but doesn't actually enter into it as their own person. And so incarnation really is the technical term to describe what Christians mean, what Christians are talking about when they say the word became flesh or that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that the son of God, the immortal begotten son of God actually became a human being in the world. Um, how I got into this topic really started when I was taking theology in seminary. And um, my professor, Ian McFarland, assigned a paper where you got to pick one of four questions and answer it. And the question I picked was, is it appropriate for Christians to talk about the crucifixion as a sacrifice? And I ended up writing that paper three times because I was dissatisfied with my answer every time. But that whole process got me really invested in and dedicated to questions about how Christians understand Jesus and how we interact with and talk about this concept of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and, and what it means in Christian life. Yeah, so Becky, I think one of the things that's really helpful for Christians generally, because we really do mean for this to be for everyone, or maybe even folks who are not Christians, 
is to kind of talk about kind of the centrality of the incarnation, like just within Christian belief. Uh, so how, how important is it that that's a thing? Until the modern period, it, I would say it's been the central doctrine of Christianity. Um, this gets questioned a lot in the modern period when people start reviving certain earlier ideas. But that se- to me, in my opinion, that is the defining characteristic of Christianity, that it has to do with the doctrine of incarnation, that God becomes a human being and enters into the world. And it certainly fights over this that shaped early Christian theology. Early on, I mean, in scripture itself, you have the problem of Jesus. You have certain scriptures that seem to portray Jesus as utterly human, just a human being. Um, I think the, the most charming one for me is definitely the one of him being left behind at the synagogue, a child who just became so engrossed in what he was looking at that he didn't even notice his party had left and they had to come back panicked looking for him. But then you also have scripture that talk about him as though he's God. They use language, they, they make claims about it. And early Christians were praying to Jesus. They were celebrating communion, the Eucharist um, in his name. They were worshiping Jesus as a God is what early non-Christians wrote about them, that they, they gathered together the first day of the week to sing songs together and worship Jesus as a God. Um, and so there's this problem, this tension between this portrayal of Jesus as divine and this portrayal of Jesus as human. And early Christians went every which way trying to figure out what exactly this paradoxical claim meant. And so you have earliest controversies over what's called docetism. Um, The idea that perhaps Jesus was God disguised as a human being, but never really fully human, never really a human being, just seemed that way. And then you had um, perspectives that said, well, Jesus was really a human being, but was inspired by God, was a teacher like the prophets. And so different ways that, that people would talk about this and these debates got carried out um, between, between Christians, between different churches, and eventually led to so much conflict in the early empire that the emperor called councils of Christians to come together, debate these issues, and try to settle the question, which never really works, um, but try to settle the question to bring peace back to the realm. And so this is fights over, debates over how Christians are supposed to understand the incarnation really dominated the first several centuries of Christianity. Yeah, and so your, your book turns on one of those particular questions, which has to do with a later issue that arose, and it has to do with, with the, the substance of Jesus and Jesus's nature which, you know, you know, popular at the time were uh, Greek philosophical conceptions of, of things as kind of sort of having an idealized nature and not always quite fitting into the mold, but also the, that God and the divine having a completely separate nature from the rest of, of reality, which was, you know, presumed to be created. And so it was Arius, right, who claimed that Jesus was sort of just, um, you know, a human being, or maybe almost like a demigod of some kind, but, but definitely something that was created by God rather than 
uh, part of God, of the same substance of God. So can you go a little more into depth about that? Absolutely. Arianism is really where I start looking at this concept because Arius was a priest in Alexandria. He was fighting against what he pers- what he understood to be a heresy, Gnosticism, that denied the goodness of material reality. Uh, but in pushing against Gnosticism, arguing against it, he argued that the word was not the same as God, that it was created by God, that it was created by God before anything else was, so it would have been pseudo-divine, but it wasn't truly God and was ultimately really a creature. And he argued this thinking he was correcting a heresy and his bishop disagreed with him strongly. And uh, this was the debate that eventually led to the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed that Christians around the world still recite today. Um, So in 325, the Council of Nicaea was called to adjudicate this controversy that started between a priest and his bishop. So just imagine if church politics was the same today. And so Arius was famous for saying about the word that there was a whence when he was not, Um, that there was a time that the word did not exist. Not really time, but before time. It's all very confusing. But what I get at in the book is that this argument about whether or not the word is co-eternal with God, if it's always with God, also goes to understandings of what the word is. Um, Is the word truly divine or not? And there was this, what has come to be called an understanding of an ontological divide between the creator and the creation. And ontological, just a big word meaning being or substance, looking at what is it, and that the creator is something utterly different from the created. And so Arianism was transgressing that ontological divide. It was saying that there's not this division, at least if there is, the word is on the created side of that division. And so from there, in, in, in Nicaea and later in the Council of Constantinople, they refined and amended the Nicene Creed. There's the claim that Jesus was truly God, begotten of the unbegotten, true God from true God, light from light. And so there's this emphasis on the divinity of the word, the, the utter divinity of the word. In later time, that came to raise questions about the humanity of the word. And so the council that I talk about the most happened in a century and a half later in 451, the Council of Chalcedon, when they talk about the two natures of Jesus, that there was, that Jesus, that the word is consubstantial of the same substance, the same stuff as God, but is also consubstantial with us, um, with human beings. And the argument I make in this book is that that is absolutely true, but that the theological significance is not that the word is consubstantial with humanity, but that the word is consubstantial with creatures, that it crosses the ontological divide and becomes a creature for the creator, as well as being the creator. I always like to think of myself as a creature, just just for some giggles. And to really think, uh, we really don't think of ourselves as creatures, but we should we're a part of the creation. And so Becky, what is it, why is it important that 
or problematic, I guess, that we talk about the difference in between Jesus being a part of creation versus Jesus like being a person. So in the book, I go into this, I classify the problems in three different categories and I made the categories. You can redefine them in different ways. Um, but if you take them, not in the order that they're in the book, but in the chronological order, they, they come up in the history of Christianity. The first is really a coherence problem. There have been arguments from the beginning of Christianity that it makes no sense to say that one being could be both divine and human. And that's because the Greco-Roman philosophical world had very strong presuppositions about what something must be if it's divine. And some of those things have to do with unchangeable, um, immutable is the theological term we use, but that God is unchangeable, that God is not capable of death, that God is not bound in space. And then there are characteristics that apply to human beings, that we are mortal, that we are changeable, that we are bound in time and space, that we're finite in knowledge. And so there's, it's been pointed out from the beginning that it's paradoxical to say that anybody could be both of these things at the same time. And so that's one category of problems that this claim creates. Another category of problems that comes up in, with the Enlightenment, really, and, and modernity is as we become more aware of various religions, Christians found it less and less plausible to say that the one God of all of creation became incarnate at one particular time in one particular place and one particular person sharing a particular message, and that those who don't receive this are condemned. They found that to be unjust on the part of God. And then the third category really is a, a pretty contemporary category, but I raise that as justice issues. And as we become more aware of how Christianity has been used to support various injustices, from colonialism to white supremacy and now ecological degradation, Christians have come to question a doctrine that can be used to support these things. Um, Mary Daly is one very famous feminist who rejected Christianity because of the way Jesus has been used in history. And so what I was looking for was a way to talk about the incarnation that doesn't give rise to these problems. And by viewing the incarnation as the incarnation as a creature, then you can't support white supremacy on the basis of it. You can't support patriarchy on the basis of it because you're not emphasizing the individual characteristics that people have used to try to uh, say that because Jesus was a man, women can't be ordained, or because Jesus was a man, men are in charge of women in the household. Or as Megyn Kelly said on Fox News, Jesus was white. That's just a historical fact, which it's not. It's, it, it's not a fact. It's, it's a falsehood. But um, that sort of perception has been used to try to, to support white, or not to try to, to support white supremacy. And so looking for a way to understand the incarnation as effective for all of creation uh, without having to go through the mediation of male priests or white culture, and in ways that don't lead to the logical problems that have kept philosophical theologians employed for centuries, was why I, I looked at it from this perspective.
understanding the, that this theological significance is that the creator crossed the ontological divide, not the particular species that the creator became. Yeah, and you raised you raised some problems, right? So um, at several points, you mentioned that that the doctrine of the incarnation, as we imagine it, you know, who is Jesus and why is Jesus who Jesus is, as we imagine it, has implications for other things. You know, when you talk about systematic theology, it's a system, and so when you change one thing, other things have to be adjusted accordingly. And you know, scripture is not systematic theology. Systematic theology is just what we try to make of the literature that is scripture. So, you know, what are the potential consequences for looking at things in that way? Like, like how does that affect all the other things we think about or that Christians think about their religion? Well, the biggest resistance to this is that a lot of people think it undermines human dignity. Um, that if we think of ourselves as a beloved creature of God, instead of a human being, the ruler of all creation, then we're not going to have grounds for human rights. We're not going to have grounds for thinking ethically about interhuman relationships. I've not heard that argument made coherently with anything except for biases that we come to as human beings who have always thought of ourselves as the linchpin of creation. But the implications it has for... um, for theology in general, in, in chapter five, I go into some of these. Um, it has implications for how we understand sin and salvation. If you, and we haven't gotten to how I, I argue about what the incarnation accomplishes, but if the incarnation is for all of creation, then Christians have to rethink what exactly it is that the incarnation is accomplishing. From the earliest creeds, uh, it's been assumed that the purpose of the incarnation is for the salvation of human beings. That's how it's phrased, for us and for our salvation. And so rethinking the incarnation as related to all of creation makes us consider not just the human predicament, but the predicament of all of creation. What, what does creation stand in need of? What does, the, what does Jesus bring to all of creation? So those are two things. I started this with uh, the cosmic assumption that the incarnation benefits all of creation, but also with, and I don't get into it in the book, although it's in the footnotes, but don't read those. Um, so it, There's a lot of footnotes. It's an academic book. <laughs> but is the speculative question or hunch that perhaps the incarnation is not just to serve human beings, but that it actually is doing something for God and in the being of God. And that what we experience not to lessen it in any way is a derivative effect though, that perhaps it's not the purpose of the incarnation. I don't offer any speculation on other purpose, that'll be in book four. But if you start to consider that perhaps this whole project, this whole commitment to become a creature is actually part of what constitutes God as love, that for God to love, that God so loved, that God called creation into being from nothing, then that also has implications for how Christians might talk about the Godhead, how Christians might talk about Trinity. Not that we talk about it that much and not that we ever talk about it with any form of coherence, but it gives it raises new questions and, and new challenges for talking about that. Uh, just to be fair to all listeners, 
no one has ever talked about the Trinity with coherence because that's why we call it a mystery. As with many Christian claims, it is paradoxical. And Brian is absolutely right. Basically, anytime anyone has tried to offer a specific explanation of the Trinity, they have been ruled out of bounds. Christians don't know how to say what it is, but they know that however you just said it isn't right. And anyone who's tried to preach on Trinity Sunday has probably experienced that. And then it has ethical implications for Christians too, because if everything that exists is a beloved creature of God, then it raises questions for how we are to love our neighbors. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to treat rocks as if they were human children, but it does mean that there's at least an ethical question to be raised about what is the proper treatment of other creatures within this world. And so there's implications for Trinity, there's implications for sin and salvation, there's implications for ethics all tied up into the ways that we talk about the incarnation. I'm sure there's implications for other things, but those are the ones that interest me. Yeah, I uh, really love that tension that you have in the book that sort of decentralizes, um, not necessarily humans as less important, but sort of fits us back into the realm of like, we are part of this larger creative thing. And the difference that we have with the rest of creation doesn't make us, uh, doesn't create a hierarchy, but um, it's just part of how God created us. And so, and this is part of uh, my wife's project. She comes at it from a philosophical point of view, not a, not one from the church, um, but how we are to live in relation with the rest of the world, the physical uh, creation and the, the, the ethics of that, you know, how, how we're to, to care for things, how we are to grow um, as a people, as a species, as a culture, um, and the way we use the things or other people around us. I thought that was done beautifully uh, throughout your book. And my question is, how was that reframing difficult for you, um, especially the way that we've been taught about salvation? What about that decentralization was difficult for you, and how did you uh, address it in the book? Thank you so much for that question. So as with most academics' first books, this is a revised dissertation, and the dissertation was a screed against anthropocentrism. Um, So I tried to tone that down a little bit. Anthropocentrism, for those listening at home, is a can be various different levels, but it's the idea that the world centers on human beings. You can have an anthropocentric perspective that's quite chastened, that just acknowledges that I perceive the world through human eyes, and that's the only, those are the only eyes that are available to me. These are the only senses that are available to me. But there's also anthropocentrism that says human beings are the source of all value, or human beings are the only things of value. And I think there are anthropocentric biases that have shaped human history as well as Christian history um, that continue to be very, very influential today. I think that they relate to egocentrism. I think that they relate to androcentrism um, and sexism and to racism, Um, that these are implicit biases we carry because of our social location. And I became really interested in this because I was quite frankly, tired of hearing people talk about God as though God were a vending machine, that God exists to serve human needs, that God exists to get me a parking spot on a busy day or to 
get me riches or, or whatever, and to talk about Jesus in the same way. And so I, I opened the book talking about the epistemic humility that Jesus advises in the banquet scene in Luke when everybody's at this banquet and they're scrambling for the seat of honor and he tells his followers, don't be like that. Take the lowest seat in case the host has invited someone of higher honor. And there's a way to read this that it's all about just how to avoid shame and, and achieve honor. But I think that the key and what, what I'm using, what I build off of is this idea of epistemic humility that you don't know your position in creation. We don't know that we are more important than anything else in creation. And yet we've existed for most of human history under that assumption. Um, at least certainly those of us of European descent. And so I said, not to say you aren't beloved of God. The whole thesis is that every creature is beloved of God. But what would happen if we did a theological project bracketing out any questions about our own dignity. If we stepped outside, if we, if we vacated the seat of honor and tried to just engage creation on its own terms, different creatures on their own terms. And so this is actually what underlies all of my work. Um, sometimes my things will be more ecologically focused. Sometimes they'll be more theologically focused. Sometimes they're scripturally focused. But this decentering of perspective is very important to me because I think it's necessary for us to build the kind of empathy that we need to have to address the problems we face today. Whether those, face, those problems are ecological problems or interhuman problems, we need to be able to step outside of ourselves and try to engage empathetically with those who perceive the world from different perspectives. And so this project, I, I make reference to the idea of echo-mimetic interpretation. And that the whole idea of that is that you take another creature other than human, and you learn everything you can about them. You pay attention to them. You learn how they exist in the world. And then you re-engage your questions with that in mind, with that identification in mind. And so I have what I call my eccentric chapter in this book, where I look at the doctrine of well, the doctrine of the incarnation, but mainly looking at it through the lens of what would it mean to say that the word assumed created being, what does created being mean? And I do that engaging with biological limestone, a particular kind of grass, a particular ant, a particular kind of bird, and seeing what paying attention to different creatures in their own ways of being can contribute to our understanding of what it means to be a creature so that we don't see it as, sorry, Brian, not just something to think of to make us giggle, but something that actually asserts our place and our, our worth and our value in this world, in this very interdependent world um, where we're all reliant on one another. So if the doctrine of incarnation was once centrally important to Christianity um, and is not any longer, what would be a benefit to reorienting ourselves towards that doctrine of incarnation? I think it's still very important without the doctrine part. I mean, I think the notion is very important for most Christians. There's been questioning, particularly in academic circles, going back to the coherence issues that have translated in various ways, like that it's a metaphor for the way that God relates to the world and, and everything like that. But I think that for the Christians I encounter in churches, they're not engaged in that conversation. 
Jesus is still God. And um, so I think it's important to consider these questions because Christians, Christians profess allegiance to Jesus and Christians profess to love Jesus. And I think it's important to know who and what it is you're committing yourself to. And I think that love that doesn't seek to know the object of love is pretty shallow. Um, that if Christians are pursuing a, a deep relationship with Jesus or a deep relationship with the divine, they should be pursuing deeper knowledge of the one that they are loving. Yeah, I really agree with that. That's, um, you know, a, a really wonderful thought to just sit and consider for a few minutes, you know, in silence. Um, one of the other things I appreciated about the book is your quote unquote, did you call it an eccentric chapter? Yes. Um, I, I was really uh, impressed and really admired your engagement with, with science and scientific theory. Um, you know, you see so many pastors and theologians who kind of just very much try to steer clear of conversations about scientific theory. And, and then a lot of the folks who do engage, engage not always with the best of intentions. You know, you, you see folks who kind of engage to tear things down or to push an agenda that, um, you know, discourages, you know, really being able to, to get at the stuff of reality in the way that science does. Um, you know, thinking about folks who are, are pushing for a belief in a 6,000-year-old earth, for example, um, or discouraging the discouraging engagement with evidence surrounding evolutionary theory and, and all of these sorts of things. But you, you kind of took that scientific perspective and what it can speak to us, what, can it, what it can say to us about reality, and then used it in your theological work, which was really incredible. So I was trained by Ian McFarland, who teaches in science and religion, and I myself teach in science and religion. And so one of the reasons I do this is because I'm so tired of hearing people talk as though science conflicts with Christianity. And I just want to show that if you believe in God, these theories cannot harm God. Um, these theories are a way to get to know creation better. And so that's one, one aspect of it was I'm just tired of people assuming they're in conflict. They're, they're not. Another reason that I did this is that at least until we finally, the public generally saw how science is done in the last few months, it was one of the most trusted ways of describing reality and modernity. Um, I don't think that having seen the way science is done in the last few months should undermine anybody's confidence in what we do know through science. Uh, but it has been one of the trusted ways that moderns describe the world we live in. And then I make a, an allusion to an old medieval perspective of theology as the queen of the sciences. On page 25, I say, why, why should a theologian take science into account? Because a theologian is trying to describe reality, all of it. Science is trying to describe material reality which is a part of reality, all of it, but it's not, the be, it, it's not the full extent of reality. That theology is trying to engage immaterial as well as material, is trying to go beyond that. So it's the more comprehensive. It's not better than, 
well, I mean, I'm a theologian, so I think it's better than, but I'm not arguing that it's better than science. I'm saying it's the more comprehensive study. And so a more comprehensive study must take account of the studies of the parts of the things that it's trying to explain. Um, alternatively, you know, I love it if science takes account of theology, but I don't think science needs to. And I don't think that that's a, a problem at all. If somebody is trying to explain the particular chemistry of one reaction, they don't need to be contemplating the divine in doing that. It, it could be a good spiritual practice for them to do that, but it's not necessary for the pursuit of chemistry. And so that's the reasons that, that I took this tack, this, this, approach is that I don't think they're in conflict. I think that science is a very good way to know material reality, um, particularly when we're talking about other creatures. It's the best way we have at this point. Um, it's hard enough to get people to try to engage empathetically with other human beings who can respond to us and correct us when we tell their stories wrong. Um, but science is about the only thing we have to speak on behalf of other creatures, to, to give us evidence that plants experience the world in particular ways, um, because we're not able to communicate in other manners. So those are some of the reasons uh, that I chose to engage science in that way. And I think what we find is that science uses different language but what science is telling us about reality agrees with the fundamental claims Christians have been making since the beginning of Christianity, which were not about how many years old is the earth. Early Christians, uh, Augustine said that if what you are arguing from scripture disagrees with what is proven by reason, you've misinterpreted scripture. He doesn't say disregard reality and because scripture is telling you what's real. And so I think it's important to recognize the ways that it actually resonates with the underlying claims of Christians. So Becky, you uh, prompted this question several minutes ago. Um, what does the incarnation do? What do you mean? I, I mean, what does it accomplish? So what I am arguing is that the incarnation is the foundation for everything that exists, that the incarnation, that God's desire to be for another is what calls all of creation into existence. Christians have argued about salvation and what salvation might mean for so very, very long. But when I was in college, I remember reading this anecdote about creative writing student who took a story to Isaac Bashevis Singer and his story began with a cut off head speaking and Singer evidently looked at the student and said is it not miracle enough that a head that is not cut off can speak and I think that it is miracle enough that this insane world exists that that is an incredible gift of grace and that we don't recognize that enough in Christianity because we're always looking for, but what have you done lately? What are you doing for me right now in conversation with what does Jesus accomplish? And I think Jesus is the ground for this wild, beautiful world that we inhabit, that the incarnation, this becoming a creature in relationship with the creator is what 
founds creation and what gives creation the shape that, that we have. And I think you said that doesn't necessarily preclude some of the classical ideas, right? Because there's a, a series of classical metaphors relating to relationship with the divine and relating to healing and well-being and, and those sorts of things, right? You know, you, uh, you, that's just the kind of the cherry on the sundae. And that's part of why I tried to be clear, and it may not always remain in the reader's mind in this book, is that I'm not saying those things aren't part of the conversation. I just tried to bracket them so that we could try to contemplate this doctrine as free of anthropocentric bias as we can. But if you think about the metaphors that Christians have used for salvation, you named two, uh, John, if you think about communion with God or perfecting the relationship with God or reconciliation with God, all of that is grounded in creation in the first place. And that if the word becoming creature gives shape to what creation is intended to be, then the word, the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus would also be that which perfects that relationship, that which perfects that creation. If you think about metaphors of healing, it's the pattern of what we are supposed to be is what can actually bring us back into alignment with that. The way early, early Christians like Athanasius of Alexandria talked about it, it was, if you remember the seals, not the mammal, but the thing that would be pushed into wax on a letter uh, to, ident- to show that nobody else had opened it, but it would have a pattern, a picture. And Athanasius says that human beings bore the imprint of God, but that that has become marred. And that what the incarnation accomplishes is renewing the image, the picture that has become marred through sin, through, through rebellion, through the different ways that we have understood what goes wrong in humanity. And so thinking about the incarnation in this way doesn't preclude any of the ways that, that the incarnation accomplishes human, particularly human salvation in any of the ways that we've ever talked about it. It just says that's not the thing that Christians have to hold on to as the argument for why the incarnation is universally significant, that it's significant for rocks, even if rocks have never sinned and become estranged from God, that it's important for plants and animals, even if they have never sinned and become estranged from God, because it provides the foundation of being itself. Um, but it still leaves room for this. And that's actually the next two books is looking into sin and salvation and, and crucifixion and how Christians have talked about that. How does the, this understanding of incarnation uh, affect our understanding of evil or suffering? Are they related? Is there, is, <laughs> does it? So no, no, I'm smiling because I have an article coming out the beginning of next year called bats, humans, and viruses, a chiropterophilic theodicy um, that takes up the very question of how do we understand God in light of suffering, particularly in the light of a pandemic. If I make the argument, students raise this question, if I am making the argument that every member of creation is a beloved creature of God, my student said, what does that mean for COVID-19? I said, well, it means that the SARS coronavirus 2 the name we've given it, is a beloved creature of God. Does that mean we need to just let thousands of humans die of it? No, but it has to do with recognizing divine care and divine 
appreciation of all that is. But suffering continues to happen in a world. I'm not sure that it could be avoided in a world where everything was in balance. But the argument that I'm making is that the fact that the word becomes another for God indicates that the pattern of what creation is supposed to be is creatures who are for one another. And I think that that captures from a scientific perspective, as well as a religious perspective, the fact that we are all embedded in webs of interdependence. We rely on one another in intrahuman relationships. We rely on other creatures. We cannot breathe. We cannot drink. We cannot live without other creatures. And those creatures have existences for themselves as well as for us. So the way I understand evil or the way I'm understanding it right now, because I haven't been delving into this too much, is distortion in those two poles of being that you can send, you can go astray, you can distort creation, either by failing to recognize yourself as a beloved creature of God, or by failing to recognize others as beloved creatures of God and refusing to be for them. And so there's ways to distort either by giving too much and not accepting from other creatures, or by taking too much and not giving back to the rest of creation. And so it would seem that the, if the incarnation is where the word becomes another for God, because God wants to be for another, that that's the foundation of existence. And it seems from all of my investigations into environmental science and biology and cosmology, not so much in cosmology, but I stick with biology a lot, that that's what we find is that everything exists in these mutualistic relationships. I really appreciate that sort of recentering and making sure that we recognize that we are in relationship with a lot of other sort of things, especially with the rest of the created order, as some people have said. It was interesting today, I had someone actually come into the office to meet me for the first time. I, with the Methodist Church, they move the pastors around every so often, and that generally happens in July. So I am still a new pastor to this church, and because of COVID, I haven't been able to meet my church folks as quickly as others. So it's a very slow onboarding introductory process. Uh, But the lady who came in today said that she doesn't necessarily understand the pandemic, how it's, how viruses work, but that God had, like, there's, there's a reason for all of what is happening. So we have this problem of theodicy. Judging from where she was sort of coming from, I could only assume that it was more of a retributionary understanding of what COVID was doing versus sort of where you're coming from, that even though the virus is causing suffering, it is still a creation, part of creation that God has created. How do you think your project or your book can open doors to address those sorts of understanding, maybe broaden some people's uh, understanding of how God's creation is one thing versus our human-centered understanding of uh, God 
smiting the world for some evil thing that it did. Yeah, so just clarification, Garrett, you're saying you think that she would say that the virus is punishment for some kind of moral transgression, some kind of misbehavior. Right, right, that humans have misbehaved in some sort of way, and that COVID is being used to punish or cause suffering um, so that we can repent and get in back into the good graces of God. So how does your, how do you think your book opens up those doors to different understanding? My book pushes against that understanding of the divine entirely. And that's one of the difficulties. Uh, and one of the reasons I wrote the article I just referenced is that we'll always run into a problem of why is there evil if God is good and the creator of all things, if we believe that God is an interventionist God who invents plagues to punish people, who smites the lion to protect the hunter, who you know, sometimes chooses the lion to catch the antelope and sometimes chooses the antelope to escape the lion. What I'm arguing is that every entity is a beloved creature of God. And it's really impossible for us to think of God adoring all of creation and using parts of it to kill other parts, which I know before anyone asks is going to run into problems with certain biblical stories. Um, But we all have interpretive lenses. And so I think it's an interesting question to wrestle with. And it's really no different from any other way that the question of evil has been phrased. It's just that I was able to write an article talking about cute little bats and coronaviruses rather than Hitler, um, the way it so frequently gets posed, but people never react well when I say, but Hitler was also a beloved creature of God. If God is the the caricature of the divine that we have inherited from Greco-Roman philosophical schools, of omnipotent, in control of everything that happened. Well, that's not, that's a distortion of those schools. Um, But causing everything that happens to happen in the particular way that it happens, then God could have prevented the Holocaust by ceasing to hold Hitler in existence. But that would require God to not be faithful to one of God's creatures. And I think that that casts suffering and evil in the way that we experience these things in completely different light, that God mourns with the suffering, but that God is not going to stop being faithful to any member of creation, no matter what it costs God. And I think that the divine, I mean, we don't have the perspective of the divine, but this understanding, this, this consideration gives us a way to understand why do people suffer when it's not punishment for sin, when it's not that, that it's because God is faithful to creation. And if we flip it around and think about it, would we want to have been snuffed out of existence every time we went astray? Because who knows where, we, where that going astray leads. Every opportunity that we have to turn back to the right path, why should that not be offered to another creature? I don't have the perspective of the divine, but it gives me a different way to deal with, to navigate suffering in this world by thinking that that one that is causing this suffering, God is faithful to that as well. I really like that uh, response to it, especially the idea, would we want to be snuffed out for any, any sort of transgression that we would incur upon God? And 
uh, reading scripture in general, we, we see the contrary of that. God is not the one that, you know, holds lightning bolts above our head uh, to strike us down every time we say the wrong thing or, or uh, doubt or, or those things. So grounding the incarnation as redemptive or um, validating the rest of creation um, takes that idea and, and definitely spreads it out more um, and is at least a good point to for growth um, to honor all parts of creation, even if it causes suffering on, on one part of the creation more so than other parts. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really good response, especially opening the doors to thinking about things in a different way. And I think it gives a good way to think about God and to think about God's role in this. And I don't think that if we properly appreciate that we are creatures, that it undermines our sympathy and our work to alleviate suffering in any way. We are creatures. We are not upholding all of creation in existence. And so you can wash your hands and prevent the spread of viruses. You don't need to nurture all bacterial colonies. You can have a species preference. You are a creature. And so it doesn't alleviate our responsibility in the face of suffering, but it gives a different way of understanding the divine in the midst of suffering. And Becky, this conversation has made me think, and, and really your book in general, like help me to think about kind of the universality that we're really talking about and the kind of all of existence being important in this conversation. And that really opened up to saying, you know, whether it's rocks, birds, aliens, whatever, what Jesus has done has made it, or what happened in that incarnation has made a, a, a difference for literally everything that we could ever think of. And that's, hard when we're talking about things that we don't like. The incarnation is for things we don't like too. For me, it, because when you said for things we don't like, I thought of, you know, South Florida cockroaches that have the gift of flight, but God loves them too. Whatever you just said inspired a thought that then ran away and I can't catch it again. <laughs> I'm sure it was aliens. <laughs> that might be what drove it right out of my mind. <laughs> Doing the research for this book, it was disturbing that I had to address the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Yes, I did. <laughs> because that argument has come up as an argument against the doctrine of the incarnation. Wow. So with that in mind, and I'm going to make this obscure reference to your book, just purely because I want people to buy it, not assume that they got everything from this. But uh, should Jesus have been an ant instead of a person? Well, I go into this in chapter five. <laughs> What's fun is that that is not a new question. Tertullian said, what if the word had wanted to become incarnate as a ram or a you? Tertullian doesn't say that the word would have or why there's any legitimacy to that argument. But that question was raised in, what is that, the third century, second century? And so right at the very beginning of Christianity, the question of why human and People make arguments all the time that because the word became incarnate as a human being, that demonstrates that human beings are the most important. To which I respond, does that also mean that clearly men are more important to God than women are? 
And most people are too ashamed to say yes these days. But that's been part of the history of Christianity as well. The fact is, Jesus has all sorts of individual characteristics um, that we don't have record of, but he had an eye color, he had a hair color, he had a certain length of hair, he had a sense of humor, he spoke a particular language. And in the history of Christianity, none of those characteristics have been prioritized just because they were shared with Jesus. Blue-eyed people have never been prohibited from the ministry because they didn't share the same eye color as Jesus. But women have been excluded from ministry because they don't share certain physical characteristics with Jesus. And so it's interesting the ways that feminists have pushed against that kind of patriarchal problem has been to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And so as I push against racial problems and cultural problems and gender problems and ecological problems that have been supported by appealing to the incarnation, I'm pushing us back to consider the creatureliness of the word instead of the humanity of the word. I guess we'll have to buy the book then. I think we've already all bought it. Yeah, we've already bought it, but you should buy it too. This is really wonderful and has really, I don't know, it like lights up my brain in a way that is, um, that we don't get a lot anymore. We read things to expand our minds, but this is, this is probably really giving me the most inspiration and new thought that, of anything recently. So thank you so much for writing this, for talking with us today. Um, do, we have, do you have any other final thoughts you want to say before we move into our kind of closing moments? Love your fellow creatures. I love that. Can that be a, can we make that an official podcast bumper sticker or coffee <laughs> mug? Love your fellow. I feel like that needs to be on a t-shirt. That'll be our second t-shirt after the one about Brian's transcendent mustache. This is fantastic. Remember again that that, uh, to go buy this book, uh, it would be a great, just personal reading. It would also be a great class study is what I have heard. And uh, it's, it's created being by Rebecca Copeland and that, Baylor Press coupon code again is 17 fall 20. Is that right? All right. You got it right. This is proof that my wife is much smarter than I am and can really keep track of things in just an incredible way. I don't understand. I want your brain. You know, this is, this is why we need to like stay married forever. And so I can keep your brain in my life. <laughs> we, we have very complimentary brains. So our lesson today is, is um, love something, right? That was the takeaway. I, I, I'm butchering the phrase. Uh, what was it? You said I love. I said love your fellow creatures. Love, love your fellow creatures. All right. That's going on a bumper sticker slash t-shirt slash mug. Uh, but Becky, before we go, can you uh, just tell us what's giving you life right now? Like that's the question we try to ask each other each week, uh, both to give us an opportunity to kind of talk about other things that are going on and just really celebrate, you know, other people's work, whether it be, you know, art or literature or something dense and philosophical. I really do have the perfect job for my personality because despite all the bumps in the road, what's giving me life is students. So don't love technology and the technology of trying to teach right now, but I love seeing my students again. I love researching and writing on these theological topics. I mean, it's a lot of fun to get to write about bats and viruses. And I love my garden. It's bringing me life. It's living and it's bringing me life. Hey, Brian, what's giving you life right now? <laughs> so this week 
is uh, we've had several major uh, projects going on at the Garden United Methodist Church here in Norfolk. And this week, I got to meet with one of our contractors. His name is Tony, and he's going to be leading our uh, sanctuary kind of remodel that we're taking part in while we can't gather in person. The Garden is uh, a small progressive Christian community in a fairly conservative area. And uh, we use a program called Script to gain like a, basically a rebate on many of our uh, different purchases. And uh, Tony lives in Texas and Tony signed up to be one of our Script like users. And he's going to use Script not only on our project for the garden, which might net us thousands of dollars, but he's going to use our Script for future projects that he's doing as a contractor. So that's making a huge difference at the garden and I'm stoked about that. So uh, my, my thing that's given me life this week, I don't know, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of one. So I'm just going to say the Hamilton soundtrack, which Don, John has accused me of listening to nonstop. I do stop sometimes, but uh, um, yeah, not a new or original thing giving me life, but uh a very comforting and familiar and wonderful thing to dance around the house to. Garrett, did we get your sound back? Uh, what's giving me life right now is that part of my love languages is to cook or provide for other people. And every Wednesday, we're doing um, sort of a on, on Facebook Live, a cook-along um, with our folks from the church. So... Um, that has been giving me life. Uh, I spent part of the day today um, prepping the meal that we'll sort of cook alongside with one another. So I just had a lot of fun just chilling out, like chopping vegetables and sauteing and being in the moment. And then I got excited for cooking with and for other people at the same time. So yeah, that's, uh, that's what's been giving me life this week. That's really cool. And I love that both you and Brian had sort of noble things giving you life related to the church. And I said the Hamilton soundtrack. Well, don't worry, because mine is not at all noble. Uh, My thing that's giving me life this week is the final lesson from the most recent Bill and Ted movie. Because it's not the song. It's just everybody playing it together. And that has just been a really just, we had a great time watching it the other night and just really enjoying, you know, Keanu Reeves in his prime Uh, because he is, I think he is in his prime right now. He is, he is doing some really spectacular work. You know, I'm waiting for the future John Wick supercut where we just watch, you know, 10 hours straight of gratuitous violence and call it a single movie. I mean, that's that's the future of filmmaking right there. Okay, well, thanks everybody for joining us on Logosish today. Follow us on our social media. Email us at logoshishpod at gmail.com if you have any questions. And uh, yeah, just, hey, be good to your fellow creatures. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. 
This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any questions or thoughts, or if you'd like to have your music featured on the podcast, be a guest on the podcast, or suggest a topic for us to cover, send us an email to logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at logosishpod. And we just want to ask that you please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That helps us get the word out about all the other wonderful stuff that we have going on, and we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Have a wonderful week.